1: Discourse.
2: Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Fox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Jane Koston and Ezra Klein, and we are going to talk about The fate of democracy in America. Um, And in particular, there's a couple of, um, I don't know how you put it,
3: shenanigans
2: that are going on in lame duck sessions. Shenanigans feels light.
4: Yeah.
3: Violations of our sacred order.
4: By miscreants. Can we use the word miscreants. miscreants? Yeah.
2: Well, So here's what's happening. In Wisconsin and Michigan, uh, back in 2010, not only in those states, but those are two states that in 2010, Republicans swept into power. They swept statewide offices. They swept state legislative offices. And then they, because of the 2010 census, got to redraw their electoral districts. And they held on in 2014 when Republicans uh, did very well. But here in 2018, the— Payment has come due and Democrats swept statewide offices in both Michigan and Wisconsin. So I don't know. That's American political system operating as it's supposed to, right? How the cookie crumbles. It's – well, it's also – like these are swing states, right? So the pendulum swings. It was a bad atmosphere for Democrats in 2010. It was a good in 2018 except – America also allows for these lame duck legislative sessions. So Scott Walker has lost his reelection bid as governor of Wisconsin, but he is still governor and the old legislature is still in place and they are considering today a whole suite of bills that would both reduce the powers of the governor's office and of the attorney general's office and also put into place a number of voting restrictions. And sort of lock them in so that when Tony Evers takes office, he will be taking charge of a a diminished office. Something very similar to this happened in North Carolina two years ago where a Democrat won the governor's race, kicking out a Republican trifecta. So they used the lame duck session to reduce the governor's office's power. In Michigan, something broadly similar is in the works, although on a bit of a less express track. And they are also there pulling a a move to basically – nullify a ballot initiative that had been in place to raise the minimum wage and it's flown a little bit below the national radar because these are these are state politics stories you know but the, but the national implications seem quite real to me you know this is a time we've had sort of two years of steady takes about Donald Trump and democracy and institutions but what you're seeing in these states and especially in, in Wisconsin North Carolina I think is that the threat to the you know legitimacy and democratic legitimacy of the American political system does not have like that much to do with Donald Trump's goofball personality.
4: Right. And, you know, I I brought up this example a little bit when we were chatting up yesterday Um, in Utah. uh, The voters, 53 percent of voters passed Proposition 2, which is the Utah Medical Cannabis Act. And the voters were like, we would like the Utah Medical Cannabis Act. And then lawmakers voted on Monday in a special legislative session to replace what the law that voters had approved. And so they had announced in October they were going to rewrite the legislation prior to its passage after meeting with the Church of Latter-day Saints and a bunch of other groups that opposed the legislation that, again, voters supported. So again, like this is very separate from Trump or conversations about Trump. And This is something that's taking place in a lot of states where the voters have spoken, and yet the voters are apparently not being heard. So I'm not
3: actually so sure that it is separate from... Donald Trump and the national GOP for, for reasons I'll get into. But I actually want to go a little bit deeper into what Wisconsin Republicans have proposed because it's telling. Uh, our, our colleague Tara Golshan has a great piece on this on the site. We'll put it in show notes. But what they've proposed and what, and what they're going to be voting on is they want to cut down the number of early voting days, limiting it down to two weeks. They, there's a proposal to let the Republican legislature intervene in legal cases and hire their own lawyers. Uh, specifically, this is about – there are a bunch of cases where Republican states are challenging Obama-era laws like Obamacare. And the Democratic governor could take the state out of that challenge, and the Republican legislature is trying to um, be able to take that challenge on on behalf of the state. Even if the Democrat does that, they want to change the date of Wisconsin's twenty twenty presidential primary from April to March. Um, what they're trying to do there is separate what they're calling a partisan primary from nonpartisan ones that deal with, say, state supreme court judges, because they want to keep their majority on the supreme court. Um, I believe it's a president of the Senate there, though I could be misremembering which leading Republican legislator said this, but. He said that the Republicans would have a better chance if these were uh, separated. They want to give the legislature more power over a bunch of boards and commissions like the Wisconsin Economic Development Corporation. They want to limit Evers' ability to change state work requirement laws around food stamps and health care, giving the legislature oversight over any of those waivers a state has received. So there are a bunch of things that Republicans have either done when they were in power or want to do to keep power that they are trying to that they're trying to take control of, even though they've lost the election. And one reason I don't think this is completely different from some of the trends happening at the national level is I do think this is a big undercurrent of the national Supreme Court fights. If you look at what the Roberts Court, and I think we can expect the 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 court that now has Kavanaugh on it has been doing and, and will be doing. You saw the case around union dues um, right. that really weakened public sector unions. You've seen them refuse to rule on gerrymandering, which allowed for quite a bit of continuing Republican shenanigans around that, although, of course, some Democratic ones, too. You've seen the efforts on on to gut the Voting Rights Act and, and largely successful efforts. And there are a bunch of other things like that. Citizens United, um, I always think this is a pretty interesting number. There's a study out there that says that Citizens United has given Republicans a five-point advantage in state legislature races, which then gives them gerrymandering powers, which then, which then, which then. The big point here is power begets power. Right. But yeah. I, I'm not saying that this is different from national political trends. What I'm saying is that
2: this is separate from Donald Trump.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I Yes, right. I agree that it's separate from Donald Trump's specific, like, tendencies towards authoritarianism. My only point is that it's laddering up as well. Yes, but I think it's important because there is a thing about
2: Donald Trump that often goes by the word populism. Right. And there is a sense and and you see this in David Frum's book. You see it in Yasha Munk's book. um, You see it in a a lot of sort of national discourse. There's a view that connects Donald Trump via his immigration and trade policies, which are somewhat distinctive from where Republicans have been, to the European far right and to a notion of populism, right, of Viktor Orban and the threat to democracy, right, which is a classic notion of a kind of plebiscitary dictatorship, right? The demagogue who whips people up, undermines institutions in the rule of law and entrenches himself as a personalist ruler. And Trump does have some of those qualities. Like people are not misreading them. But there is this other story, right, that seems— bigger to me that like Trump is not a plebiscitary dictator. He's a guy who lost the popular vote and he's entrenched mostly through appointing very conventional conservative republicans to the Supreme Court and these kind of moves to quasi-nullify election results are coming from the, the heart of establishment republicanism. Right. right? Like this is not the barbarians at the gate. This is the chamber of commerce – Right And the Coke network, and this is what they're doing because it advances important but banal policy goals. Like they want the minimum wage to be low. Right. They want to make it harder for people to get on food stamps. There's no populism really to any of this. It's not like the masses overriding our fussy liberal order. It's actually people deploying the fussy liberal order to overturn – Election results.
4: So it's interesting, and looking at the Michigan case, um, if you know the Michigan House passes the Senate-approved changes that the GOP-controlled Senate has already approved, and this is going against what obviously voters supported with regard to the hourly minimum wage and mandated paid sick leave, that would mean that workers wouldn't see a raise to $12 per hour until 2030. And tipped workers who now earn $3.52 per hour will have their wages capped at $4 per hour.
3: Well, capped aside from tips, we should say.
4: Wow. Yes. Okay.
2: But so— People were out, activists were gathering signatures to put a minimum wage and sick leave issues on the ballot, right? Because this has been in a gerrymandering era, a way progressives have found an end around through gerrymandered districts is you can't gerrymander a ballot initiative. But the Michigan constitution allows the legislature to sort of preempt a ballot initiative by passing it into law, And so they did that. They passed minimum wage and sick leave legislation before the election to take it off the ballot and sort of diffuse it as an issue. But they delayed the implementation until midway through next year. So that now created the opportunity to, during this lame duck session, modify the laws that they passed earlier this year that kept these issues from going on the ballot. This is completely legal, but it's the opposite of populism, you know, is is what's going on here.
3: Here's, I think, something that that is interesting about it. Um, and, And we really saw this in North Carolina, but we're seeing it, I think, in Michigan. We're seeing it in Wisconsin. You might expect that the natural check on this kind of behavior in small d democratic society would be that legislators would feel that if they did this, they would get voted out of office, right? That yes. people would look at them and say, You are breaking the rules. You are directly contravening what we wanted to happen, and we are going to um, turn you out. And they're doing this quite fearlessly. And my understanding in North Carolina is that it did not lead to a large backlash against Republicans. Um, it does not look like the Michigan legislature practically fears what might happen in the aftermath of this. And and there are many possible reasons for this. It may be that the way the votes are distributed and the way the districts are, are built, that, you know, the voters who voted for these laws do not have as much power, um, you know, as you might as you might expect, given their sheer numbers, or it might just be that people forget or it might be that people don't care. But I do think one of the things that that has to be looked at here is that there there is a remedy for this. Right. This is not, as you say, Matt, they're using the fussy liberal order and there is a, a, a kind of not so fussy democratic response. But the fact that so many legislatures feel able to do this, and this goes also for gerrymandering and a bunch of other things, there really does seem to be a belief in politics, and it may well be a correct belief, that voters do not vote on process. They do not vote because what they feel you did was unfair. And in fact, your voters prefer that you take as much power as you can whenever you can. And so, you know, maybe this is all in the game now, right? Like maybe, maybe these are the rules of politics, not the other rules of politics. Yeah. I think like given the, the responses of the electorate, you have to ask if that's actually the world we're living in.
2: Well, the problem, though, is that in 2018, most voters in Wisconsin voted for Democratic state legislators and most voters in Michigan voted for Democratic state legislatures. Right. But in both cases, Republicans ended up with a large majority of the seats because of how the district lines have been drawn. So it's not that they don't fear that the voters will turn on them. It's that they have proof in hand that the voters turning on them won't cause them to lose their majorities.
4: And especially in a state like Michigan, you know— when governor, current governor, Rick Snyder, he didn't endorse the Republican who is slated to follow him, who lost his election. The Republican Party in Michigan and Wisconsin and in a bunch of other states, including Pennsylvania, is ebbing in popularity. And so I think that this is an understanding that you got to get, you know, get the getting while the getting is good, so to speak.
2: Right. I mean, it, it does all intersect in a fairly fundamental way with gerrymandering because, ultimately given gerrymandered lines to lose the races you would need to alienate not the median voter in your state but a voter who's considerably to the right of the median voter and that voter you know as you were saying Ezra like wants his local elected officials to grab as much power as as they can right, right. because like because he's much to the right of the state median and does not you know think that a sort of fair majoritarian process is going to represent uh, the the interests that he has.
3: So there's an an interesting dynamic here, though, which is that – let me say this two ways. So in a society where you have a a, a political coalition in power – But that it knows it will lose power. It knows that the numbers are turning against it. This is, you know, if you take us out of the American context, if you like kind of get rid of like our myths about ourselves and our beliefs about ourselves, like this is often what political science says will happen. That you will see a a widespread effort on the party that has power to change the rules so that they will be able to keep power. Like we used to have these articles on the side and they they came out of great articles that were were written at at Slate. It's a it's a great format, like how we report on this if we're happening in another country. Right. And, and it's just like it's this much colder kind of like, oh, and this banana republic over here. Um, so on the one hand, this isn't that unusual. On the other, it kind of is, because in the way we typically theorize about politics, uh, particularly against small D democratic politics, if you have a party that is losing but he's beginning to lose power. What you what they want to do is expand their appeal so they don't lose power, right? This is right. This sort of the idea of the Republican autopsy in 2012. It remains true to this day that Republicans have now lost six of the last seven presidential popular vote margins. Um, that's a really bad record for a party. You'd, you'd want to be beginning to kind of think up a bigger, broader, tense strategy, but instead they've been doing the opposite. And in these different states, which, you know, Republicans are by no means out of power forever in Wisconsin and Michigan, but as Jane says, There's some real bad currents for the parties in in those states and in Michigan where Rick Snyder didn't even endorse the the next governor. You know, you might imagine a a Michigan Republican Party deciding, okay, like we've made some wrong turns here. If we're going to be competitive and certainly if we're going to be dominant in the next couple of years, like we need to get back to a a broader based appeal. And kind of again and again, that that doesn't seem to be happening with the Republican Party. Uh, I did this interview with Nate Silver right before the election, and we were talking about he was saying that in his models, when you run the numbers, the average state is six points more Republican than the nation as a whole. So the way the Senate is apportioned, given that it weights states equally, not people equally, the Senate gives Republicans a six-point advantage than they would otherwise have. But Republicans don't have the kind of dominance over the U.S. Senate that you would expect from that advantage. And and the reason um, is that instead of spending that advantage on more seats, they spend that advantage on more unpopular policies. They use that advantage to give themselves a buffer to do things that they're sort of, either they, the Republican elites, or more narrow parts of their base want done. And it seems to be something that is happening all over the Republican Party right now, and I don't particularly have a clear explanation of why. I'm curious if either of you do. Let's take a break and then come back to that.
0: In 2023, people sent over $100 billion worldwide with WISE. What's more, over half of those transfers got to their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Whether you're traveling, sending money abroad, or doing business, let WISE help you manage your money in different currencies with ease. Join 16 million customers already using WISE worldwide. To learn more about how a WISE account could work for you, download the app or visit WISE.com. That's WISE, W-I-S-E.com, WISE.com. WISE.com.
4: So it's interesting because I I think about this question a lot, about the idea, you know, whenever there is some conservative or far-right commentator who is very concerned that there will never be a Republican president ever again because there are too many brown people voting, you know, I think to myself, you could attempt to pitch Republican ideas to non-white people. You could do that. It's a thing that has been done before. You know, during the 2018 midterms, a Republican candidate, namely Ted Cruz, did better with Latino voters than Trump did in 2016. When we had our conversation about California conservatives, we talked a little bit about this, that, you know, it's something that I would love to get into at some other time is that, you know, George W. Bush and Rick Perry ran very different campaigns that did, in fact, aim at non-white voters who they thought might have conservative leanings. But I think you see this idea... Obviously, since I've written about this, I deeply believe this. But you see this kind of California conservative, like we have to like get all this done right now because we will never win an election again because there's no way that we could pitch our ideas to these people. And it's a very strange argument to basically say like if we don't attempt to usurp the rights of the voters or take away the decisions the voters have made, we cannot fight with Democrats on an equal playing field, when well, history would easily dictate that clearly conservatives can.
2: This also reminds me of when we were talking about the California conservatives because this kind of behavior, the behavior of state-level Republican parties, it suggests to me that for all this kind of – hype in the in the media world of of this idea that politics is downstream of culture or that what conservatives really want is victory in the culture wars. Their behavior in this kind of like brass tack stuff says otherwise, right? Like there is some element of the institutional conservative movement that really, really craves political power and not just the showy symbolism of political power, right? Like Scott Walker losing to Tony Evers is a big kind of statement, right, in the in the culture like Wisconsin. Is it turning into a red state? No. Now we have this liberal governor again. But like the legislature is acting here in procedurally and substantively abusive ways because there is a profound concern about the little niggling details of public policy, right? And it's the same in Michigan, right? Like – The minimum wage is really popular, right? It's really popular. If you wanted to own the libs, you would just take one for the team and embrace it. But like they don't. They are willing to bend the rules, to break norms, to risk losing elections, to make sure that companies do not need to increase the salaries that they pay to low-income people. And it just seems to me that when you look not at the sort of – rhetoric of conservatism but at the practice of conservative politics that the fingerprints of plutocracy are all over it. I mean not just in the campaign contributions that go but in what is the substantive agenda, in the willingness to lose elections in pursuit of unpopular policies and also in the question of what's in it for you, right? Like how come nobody from the back benches of the Wisconsin legislature – wants to be the reformer hero who like stands up to the party machine and to these kind of abuses, right? And it's like somebody is doing this work and it's not like – dedicated readers of the Breitbart comments section who are obsessed with culture war atmospherics, right? Like, these are people who really, really, really care about whether or not it is easier or harder to sign up for Medicaid and food stamps in Wisconsin. And they are taking big risks to their reputations, to their careers, to the underlying stability of the American political system. And I have to think that's because, like, really rich donors think this is
3: important. I think there's something more ideological at at heart of this because taking this in a couple different directions, I mean, I think a lot about the thing Paul Ryan said, which he said, I believe, to Rich Lowry of the National Review. When Ryan was about to gut Medicaid, the, the bill didn't end up passing. Is this the keg stands? Yeah, the keg stands comment where he said that you and I have been dreaming about this since we were doing keg stands in college or since we were at keg parties in college or whatever it was. And, you know, what he was saying there, if you took it out of its kind of like um, um, extremely fratty phrasing, was that you and I have been dreaming about gutting Medicaid since college. And I thought to myself, like, who is sitting around in college dreaming about gutting Medicaid, like taking Medicaid away from poor people? But a lot of conservative activists are, right? If you're if you're a young Republican of, of Paul Ryan's ilk, you know, that, that's what you're accultured in. I don't buy on some level that this is all coming from the donors. And I don't buy it because I just don't think the donors are, are strong enough. Like my read of most money in politics things is that you can do a lot with money in politics, but you can't, it is very hard to buy people away from the positions they actually hold. What it's very easy to do is reinforce the positions they, they already hold. Right. And it seems to me that like the, the, the role the money is playing is like the fortress that allows them to hold the positions or push the positions they actually have. And, you know, money is complicated, right? There's a lot going into convincing people of these positions. There's a lot going into like giving them a motivated reasoning structure. I mean, there's all kinds of things that money actually does in practice. But isn't but,
2: reinforcing the positions that they already have? Like, isn't that what's happening here? Like, I'm not saying that's what I'm
3: that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I think, it's not, yeah. I'm just saying it's not just the donors. It's not like if you took out the donors, Mitch McConnell and Paul Ryan would be in a different place. And the, just the other point on this was that it really looked in the campaign like Donald Trump was going to break this. Right. That Donald Trump was going to come in and he was going to say, no, the core of the Republican Party is like white resentment and borders. And I don't really care about the donors because Donald Trump didn't primarily fund his campaign. He is not as um, reliant on donors as a lot of other players. He gets a lot of free media, you know, et cetera, et cetera. he He wasn't, right. It's probably going to be different next time. But he didn't. He came in and it turned out that, like, everybody he hired and everybody whose votes he relied on in Congress, like, the old, the way he was going to maintain their support was by buying into this. And I think at some level it's because like, this is, like, the authentic belief of the Republican Party. You've had these good rants in the past, Matt, about, like, this being a group of people who they really believe what they believe. Like, they, they, like, they are fiercely committed to this vision of the country. And I think in Wisconsin you see it. Like, it's just bizarre. It is bizarre that the thing you would try to do is make sure that the incoming Democratic governor could not change the waivers on Medicaid and on food stamps, like that that is the hill you want to die on. But like they believe it, right? Like they, they believe enough in these waivers that are just – that are adding work requirements and making it harder for people to access needed social safety net programs. That like – they are willing to take all this, all these hits. And I don't think it's because there's such a huge donor industry in Wisconsin that are backing them up on this. I think it's because like they believe this is the kind of thing that they are in politics to get done. So this makes me wonder how far this kind of
2: trend is going to go, right? Because I think that there's – both an asymmetry between the blue states and and the republicans in this regard and also you know, some disturbing kind of implications. Like the basic issue in both Wisconsin and Michigan is that you can't gerrymander elections for statewide races but you can gerrymander state legislative races. So democrats got a you know, modest but real majority – sort of all up and down the ballot in those states. But that created wins in the statewide offices, but losses of legislative majorities. And so conceivably, you could see a push, you know, if next time there's a Republican governor— In one of those states, because the pendulum swings back and forth, to really reorder the state constitution and all 50 states copy the presidential system where you have an independent executive and legislature, but there's no requirement for that, right? If you're really committed to the idea that gerrymandering is good and that a big problem with governors having power is that you can't gerrymander your way to winning governor's races, you could just like do away with the office of governor, right, and have a kind of parliamentary system based on gerrymandered districts and rule forever. And that would go against norms of various kinds. But at the same time, passing large constitutional changes after you win an election would in some ways be less norm-violating than doing it after you lose one. And then you have the opposite trend in, I feel like, blue states where democratic leaders in the state legislature in Maryland were really not enthusiastic about Ben Jealous's campaign against Larry Hogan, that for a lot of moderate Democrats in Maryland, it was good to have a moderate Republican governor because that took pressure off of them to sort of deliver— big left-wing legislation. And there's just absolutely none. And then in New York, you had the opposite thing where Andrew Cuomo for years kind of helped Republicans stay in charge of the state Senate. Massachusetts like almost never has a Democratic governor, always because state party officials are kind of like tanking the races. And Democrats have, in most of these instances— It's not that they don't fight to win their own seats and get like their own political power. But this kind of spirit of like team play and like what we really want is to advance a maximum agenda just like does not really exist in in state politics for Democrats and and hasn't anywhere. And it – it really sort of profoundly shapes how policy goes over, over the long term. And I feel like in some ways the divergence is, is only intensifying.
4: Right. Something, though, I want to go back to is something Ezra was talking about. And we've been talking about this idea of populism and something that, you know, I think me and a couple other folks on ye old Twitters have said is that, you know, if Trump – were an actual populist and had basically kept up kind of what he was talking about in 2015 and 2016 and not kind of subsumed himself to Mitch McConnellism. I think he would be a much more popular and much more concerning for Democrats president because, you know, I think often of former Louisiana governor and United States Senator Huey Long, who was probably the most recognizable example of what a populist looks like in America until his assassination in 1935. He was a very controversial figure, but he's also, you know, he set up the share our wealth program, which was, would have established a net asset tax. And basically his plan was so that everyone would have a car, a radio, and a home worth $5,000, and he's talking about this in 1932, and he is winning on it. It's interesting because If Trump were like that, if, you know, all the talk about infrastructure weeks actually meant something. You know, Michael Brendan Doherty has a piece in National Review this week talking about, you know, the populist steps that Trump could take. And they include, you know, the establishment of private worker co-ops and workers' councils of the kind that, you know, are in Europe. And, you know, a actual far-reaching infrastructure plan so that the America has the best roads and transportation hubs. If an actually populist Trump were to do those things – And if the GOP were not so obsessed with this idea that in order to in order to win, they have to make it so that it's not them winning, it's that Democrats cannot win. That would be very concerning for Democrats. And I remember that there was a moment early in 2017 in which Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer met with Trump to talk about infrastructure week of people like, oh, this could actually happen. And then, you know, reality happened. And it's just interesting to think of, you know, that populism for Trump was a vehicle rather than a belief system. And it's interesting to think of what would have been like if it wasn't. You know
3: the the thing I always think about on that is right after the election, right after he won, there was this uh, event. I don't know. There there was this thing that happened with what was it called? Is it was the Carrier air conditioning manufacturer? Yes, manufacturer. I is remember right? this. Yeah. So. Trump had been – he it was a little bit unclear what role he played or didn't play in this. But what he was basically doing was going on Twitter and he was cajoling and then congratulating companies for keeping jobs in the U.S. And this was creating a very weird incentive structure where companies that were not going to – Take jobs out of the U.S. for saying, "Oh, you're welcome, Donald Trump." If you'll give us a good tweet, we'll say we kept these in in here for you. And Matt, you were a great explainer on it at the time, but you really could see the 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 beginnings of this very dangerous and very crony-capitalistic approach to governance, where like Donald Trump is just like personally cajoling companies about what to do, and then companies are pretending to do things in order to win favor from the government. But it would have been very if Donald Trump had really held to that communication strategy, if that had been like his big thing, that that's what he was using Twitter for every single day amidst an economy this good, like, he'd be extremely popular, right? That was a very deadly communication strategy for for Democrats. Then he just didn't. Um, And I think he didn't because, like, one, he's not that interested. Two, um, Republicans didn't really like it um, because a lot of them, it went against some of their ideas. And I'm talking about Republican elites in Congress. And, you know, he just kind of got off on his normal Trumpy bullshit, But, yeah, there are all these kind of, like, alternative Trumps. The thing I've been thinking about, I kind of want to write a piece on this, is that it's very normal after you lose a midterm for the president to um, reposition himself in between his party and Congress and the other party. Um, You saw this with uh, Bill Clinton in 1994. You saw it with Barack Obama in 2010. There's... No evidence at all that Donald Trump is going to try to do this. And in doing that, he's actually breaking from recent accepted and quite successful political practice, right? After the election, instead of, you know, talking about how they'd work together, he fired Jeff Sessions and hired Whitaker. And there's something interesting about the way Donald Trump can only be the lowest common denominator of himself and the existing Republican Party. There is a much more potent political synthesis of those two operations that could emerge, and it just hasn't. You know, I think it has a lot to do with his own dynamics. But whatever it is, it's a real boon to Democrats that they're getting consistently the worst version of Donald Trump and not like the the politically savviest.
2: Right. I mean, it's, a, it's a boon to Democrats, but but in a lot of ways— I think a disaster for the country, right? I mean because you know where we started this, right, is, is this kind of remorseless conservative machine rolling out across state legislatures in the country throughout the judicial branch, unleashing this like profoundly anti-populist, anti-democratic agenda whose basic point is to curtail democratic input over economic policymaking. Right, But then the the flaw, the bug in that kind of system is that the presidency is such an enormous prize in politics, right? Like the presidency is something people really want and they really fight for in a way that a, that a state legislative seat isn't. And it's not a cooperative game. Like you get a Supreme Court seat by making everybody in the party be comfortable with you. You get to be president by like beating other party leaders in a contested primary and it's always the opportunity to like shake things up. And and Donald Trump, even if you didn't like the persona he put forward during the 2016 campaign, it was a persona that would have kicked this system out of its state of stasis. Stupor right well yeah. not just stuber but like it would have been a disruptive presence if he had tried to govern the way jane like you were you yeah. were glossing he He would in some ways be a much more popular figure because he would have been pushing good ideas. It would have been – made Democrats a lot more uncomfortable to find themselves agreeing with him about some stuff even while fighting on other fronts. But it also would have had him fighting with the Republican Party and with the movers and shakers in the GOP and you would have had – downstream consequences of that, right? Like state parties would fragment into pro and anti-Trump factions, not just based on persona and, you know, how you talk, but on like real issues. But instead, Trump, by sort of making his peace with the conservative Borg has left us in this situation where, you know, you can dream – I mean I, I hear Democrats like fantasize all the time that it's like you see like this threat to democracy is so much wider, so much deeper than Donald Trump. We need to like win every race forever and destroy the conservative movement and, and salt the ground and I don't know. I mean I – I if you listen to this podcast, you know I am not not soft on the institutional conservative movement. But like that's just not going to happen. That's not – like that's not how politics – works. How politics works is that movements can have internal fights, right? And like Trump was the opportunity to like have a meaningful dialogue about what they are trying to do except that it was like Trump, right? It wasn't like some idealized version of Trump who's going to – who's this like actual guy who's very – seems very lazy and like doesn't really know or care much about anything and is like really into um, maintaining his golf courses as a revenue stream. And so I feel like we may have a backlash to the current moment and then inevitably a backlash to that and it's just going to wind us like with no change at all.
4: Right. Because I think that, you know, I've argued multiple times that during the 2015-2016 campaign, Trump operated in a sense as like a tabula rasa upon which various factions within the conservative movement, including the very strong number of populist conservatives, the populist conservatives who think that, a workers' council and encouraging more Americans to not go to college but get involved in the workforce early and kind of you know how the German system you know separates between gymnasium and Realschule so that the stronger worker, they do better and they have more support. There's an idea of Trump in which you could see that. And then the biggest issue for Trump is that he became president and then none of this actually happened. There's always every, you know, four to six years, there's a like, can Democrats ever come back from this? Can Republicans ever come back from this? The answer is, of course they can. You know, neither party is like the Whigs or something. But I do think it's interesting to postulate on what a conservative movement that is influenced by populism at its base would look like and not one that is willing to wield populism, but generally against non-white people.
3: So one final point on this, but before we move on, and it's more to to lay a to lay a flag in the ground for a future conversation. But Matt, you made the good point earlier that, and in, in some ways, it makes more sense for parties to address this when they win power than than when they lose it. And the problem there is that parties win power and they want to do their policy agenda; they don't want to do their process agenda. But I, I do think that's beginning to change a bit in the Democratic Party. I think the Democratic Party is beginning to recognize it for its long-term health and also for what it cares about. It needs to have a, a democracy agenda. The Democratic Party needs to be a party that begins to defend and, and build out American democracy. So the first bill that the Democratic House is planning to take up and pass is a pretty sweeping bill of pro-democratic reforms and anti-corruption reforms. And and I don't want to gloss it here, but we'll go into it in a, in a future weeds. And you're beginning to see talk among the 2020 contenders. Deval Patrick just got profiled, and he was talking about a democracy agenda. But I do think something to keep an eye on is these Republican moves are beginning to create a counter-reaction among Democrats. And, and what that reaction is going to be is take things that maybe they've always supported, like national automatic voter registration or you know, real reforms to try to curb gerrymandering and make it the first thing they do if they get enough power to do things, not the thing that would have been nice if they had done it when they had enough power to do things. And I think the big question about whether or not this stuff ends up sticking um for Republicans or ends up backfiring on them is whether or not they increase salience among Democrats enough to 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 really change that. But that's a good topic for our future weeds all
2: right. now let's take a break. Let's do a research paper uh, and uh, wrap things up.
3: All right, we have a fun um, and interesting paper today. It's called The Parties in Our Heads, Misperceptions About Party Composition and Their Consequences. It's by Doug Aller and Garav Sood. And what they did was they basically put a survey out into the field. And they asked people, who is in the Democratic Party? Who is in the Republican Party? And specifically, they were asking about, you know, what they kind of termed as stereotypical members of the parties. What percentage of the Democratic Party was gay? What percentage of it was African-American? What percentage belonged to a union? What percentage of the Republican Party earns more than $250,000 a year? What percentage is made up of seniors? What percentage is evangelical Christians? And what they find is that, In general, misperceptions of party composition are really high, and among the opposite party, they're incredibly high. But I think this is such a remarkable stat. In general, people think that 32% of Democrats are LGBT. The actual number is 6% and that 38% of republicans earn over $250,000 per year the actual number is 2%. The thing that I find really striking about this paper is that they did a, a secondary analysis in which they looked at how do these numbers change and vary as political interest and which is to say political information like how much political media you actually consume rise. Because I think in our idealized concept of of how politics works, the more information you have, the clearer picture you have. That was not true here. In seven of the eight conditions, the only exception being the number of Republicans who make uh, more than $250,000 a year, but in seven of the eight conditions, having more information about politics led you to believe the other side was, or actually just any side, was more stereotypical than it actually was. The Democrats were more gay than they actually were. The the Republicans were more evangelical than they actually are. And that, I think, is in some ways... It's a really interesting statement about media dynamics and what picture the parties are giving of themselves and and are giving to each other about, about who is in them.
4: Right. I, I was kind of astounded, you know, respondents thought that 39.3% of Democrats belong to a labor union, only 10.5% do. And it, it's interesting how this paper really goes into kind of conceptualizations of how the groups that are within these parties, and that, you know, when you hear terms like Democrat or Republican, you a picture emerges, and that picture is often apparently not true. That's really interesting of just like, overestimating the share of party stereotypical groups, you know, what does that say about these parties and how does that influence the media dynamic and how does the media dynamic influence those parties themselves? Like, if the Democratic Party, if it thinks of itself as being you know, highly LGBT, does that make the Democratic Party more interested in pursuing in favor of LGBT equality? And if they, you know, if they were more aware of the fact that this isn't a large group of the party, would that change anything? What
2: I also wonder about this, and I, I hope the academics of the world will, will actually do what, what I want here, is how much this changes over time right? Because this is a study, we're talking about it now, and it was published, I think, a few months ago. But the surveys were conducted in 2014. Trevor Burrus 2015. And I feel like the media stereotyping of the parties can often change a lot, right? And so, like, post-Trump, there's this, like, overemphasis, I would say, in the opposite direction on the idea that, like, Republicans are these like incredibly uh, downtrodden, you know, like all like like dusky unemployed coal miners or something, which is so at odds with this like view that Democrats have that like all Republicans are super duper rich from this survey. So I would love to see like how much has that changed. And by the same token, right, LGBT equality issues have diminished somewhat in terms of how salient they are in national politics, right? Like there was a time right around the big, um, you know, Obama flip-flop on marriage equality, the Supreme Court decision, when this was like something you were hearing about all the time. And so the idea that Democrats were the party of gay rights as an important constituent element was – like that was accurate. And so you then move to the uh, misleading inference that That, that's – because a huge proportion of them are themselves gay, right? Right. Whereas today, I mean you could read political stories for a month, right? Yeah. And like not really get the sense that Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump are arguing about LGBT equality because they mostly aren't, right? I mean there continue to be important – policy issues in play, but it's just, like, not what official political arguments are about, and so you might see a a, a real receding kind of there. On the other hand, it it seems like these days you might get the impression that, like, some
3: incredibly large share of Democrats are immigrants. Right. So one of the things I think is interesting here, like, to, to look at one that wasn't really in the news when this happened, look at Atheist. What's so interesting to me, so in reality, 8.7% of Democrats are atheists or agnostic. Among Republicans, they think 36% of Democrats are, are atheists or agnostic. Democrats believe 24.5% are. One of the things that was really fascinating to me about this study um, when, it, when I dug into it a bit was how – Close the misperceptions of parties are within the parties to what the other party believes about it. So you know that earn over two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year mark for the Republican Party. Yes, it's true that forty that Democrats think forty four percent of Republicans earn over two hundred fifty thousand dollars, but Republicans think thirty three percent do. In terms of what percentage the Democratic Party are union members, yeah, it's true that Republicans think it's forty three percent, but Democrats think it's thirty seven, and so. My hypothesized mechanism for what was going on here is that if you learn about the other party through media affiliated to your ideological tendency, if you're learning about the Democratic Party from Fox News, when Fox News talks about the Democratic Party, it's like, San Francisco liberal Nancy Pelosi, angry black woman Maxine Waters, right? Like they've got all these stereotypes, and those stereotypes are very heavily built on top of these um, demographic composition issues. So like they're looking for Democrats to go after who demographically are, are going to activate their base, and and the same is true in the with with say MSNBC and the Republican Party. It's like a real focus on the Koch brothers and and folks of that nature. But that can't be happening or that can't at least be the main mechanism because you're seeing this intraparty too, right? That's not – like Democrats are not learning about the Democratic Party from Fox News. Republicans are not learning about the Republican Party from MSNBC. So something else is going on here. I I did wonder a little bit – I think a bit to your point, Matt, if people aren't making reasonably valid inferences downward, that what they're trying to say – sometimes – In polling, people are not saying what the poll is measuring um, or what the poll is trying to measure. And, you know, in terms of how much of the Republican Party seems to be, like – oriented towards helping out people who earn over $250,000 a year, I think 45% of its efforts is a reasonable estimate. You know, and similarly, like unions have an outsized uh, share of power in the Democratic Party. So it's like you could get into something where what people are trying to reflect is like what they think the parties are actually doing. And they're, they're, right. they're framing that in the question they've been given here. But I don't know. There's something interesting here that is really complicated by how close the perceptions are between the two parties.
4: Right. I I think it's interesting because there's kind of the parties themselves and the perceptions of those parties and – They're two separate things, and yet I really think that this is based on your point, that this is about what you, based on the priorities of the parties, you know, like the Democratic National Convention in 2016 was very proud of the fact that it had, you know, trans people speaking on stage, and that that is a statement that you are making, this is a priority for your party, but it does not necessarily mean that this makes up a large piece of your party's pie so to speak. But I I think that that's so interesting about the idea of priorities becoming – not necessarily being a reflection of who's in your party and who isn't but somehow becoming that.
2: And and I do think that this – it helps you think about the contested zone of American politics, right? Like the real sort of swing people in recent American politics have been white people – in the North who are not evangelical Christians but who are also probably not gay, not union members, right? Like this is the group that Obama won twice but that gave a lot of Midwestern states to Republican control in midterms, that kind of swung toward Trump, that have swung back away from Trump and it's a group of people that is not represented in party stereotypes. Right, Like if you think of a stereotypical Republican, he's rich or in church all the time and a Democrat is like part of a minority identity group of some kind or another and there's a kind of generic modal American who is not strongly reflected in either of these stereotypical coalitions and to the extent that people are thinking less of issues and more of like which is the party that people like me are in. Right. Right? That's a group of people who don't think that either party is the party for people who are – for people like me.
4: Right. I would be curious to see what this looks like in 10 years. I would – you know, one of the most fascinating transitions over the last 10 years in LGBT rights is this idea that your sexual orientation or gender identity could in fact be separate from – how your political perceptions work, and I see that every time the New York Times runs a piece about gay conservatives and you know, a gay couple that supports Trump and hangs out with donald trump jr. they were uh, there was a couple just profiled last week. And I'm like, this really is a marker for progress that gay people and straight people can all make decisions that I find mildly questionable. Equality! Hooray!
2: (laughs) Okay, and with that, uh, we should bring this episode to an end. Thanks, Jane, for joining us in a a little schedule shakeup, and thanks, as always, to our producer Griffin Tanner. Thanks to all of you, listeners out there, and the weeds will be back
1: on Friday.